Now, every Islamic rule, every piece of Islamic law has to comply with the goals of the Sharia, the right to life, the right to religion, the right to resources, the right to human dignity and intellect, and the right to family. To me, as a, as a lawyer, those sound a lot like our U.S. constitutional values, um, but these were articulated a thousand years ago. Welcome to Crossing Faiths, where Christian and Muslim talk religion and politics. Uh, it's a Friday, uh, Friday morning, and uh, uh, Matthew is on hiatus. His uh, uh, PhD classes started again, so he will be uh, joining us next week. But we have a wonderful speaker. We have uh, Ms. Simbul uh, Ali Karamani that's, uh, that's work, uh, spending some time with us today. She's an author, speaker, and former corporate lawyer, uh, and an expert in Sharia who has just written the book, Demystifying Sharia, uh, which I read about 80% of. I'm going to I'm gonna commit to that. Uh, although I was tested before this on how much I read. And I was like, well, because uh, I was listening to it in the car. So I did not get to the end of it. So I, I'm going to fess up to that. Um, but uh, I wanted to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks so much for, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So we, we just had a wonderful uh, conversation just to make sure that uh, we were going to address some questions and so forth before, but I would like to uh, just unpack a little bit about who you are and um, why this book was so important to you for you to write and 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 really your journey to to writing this book. So uh, I grew up in Southern California. Uh, I was usually the only Muslim that I knew around me. Um, it wasn't that, you know, it wasn't like 1929 or anything, but that there just were not that many Muslims um, before I would say like 1970. So my parents had come early to the United States because my dad um, was a mathematician and um, they needed mathematicians and scientists in those days, but it was generally really hard to come from the Asian countries. Um, so, so I was usually the only Muslim that, uh, that I knew or that my teachers knew or that my friends in school knew. And that means I ended up answering all the questions, right? Like, how many gods do you believe in? And do you put feathers in your hair and paint your face and all sorts of questions? <laughs> and, you know, religion didn't come up that much when you're a kid, only if you have to say, I don't eat the pepperoni pizza because I don't eat pork because I'm Muslim. But um, as I got older and I started fasting for Ramadan, I had to explain what I was doing. I remember um, in high school, I was fasting of course, no food or water until sunset. And I go to school only to learn that that was the day we were running the mile for the presidential physical fitness test. <laughs> and I thought, how do I explain to, to my, you know, old curmudgeon of a PE coach that, you know, that I'm not supposed to run because I'm fasting. And I thought, I'll just run. And actually, I was telling, um, I was telling a group of kids this story and when one sixth grader raised his hand and he said, what was your time? Right. So <laughs> anyway. Did you um, finish? Did you finish? Or, uh, I did finish. Was I there somebody finish. behind you or were you crawling through? I don't remember my time. <laughs> I didn't pass out though. So anyway, so I, um, so as I got older, you know, I, I started answering questions. And then when I went to Stanford for college, it was like Islam 101 because I was in the dorm and everybody knows what everybody else is doing in the dorm. And suddenly I had to figure out, how do I know if there's pork in the dorm food when nobody knows what's in the dorm food? And how do I know, you know, how am I going to pray um, 
without my roommate noticing when she lives a foot away from me. Mm. So, um, so I answered a lot of questions and then I went to law school. I started practicing as a lawyer and then I started getting um, questions for recommendations on books. And there were no books on Islam that answered the kinds of questions that people wanted to know. I mean, there were textbooks, the occasional Sufi poetry volume, right. but, but nothing like nothing that answered the kinds of questions I've been getting my whole life. So I-, I Well, you made a great point in the beginning yeah. when we were chatting um, prior to this conversation that the only books on Sharia that you could find were textbooks. And it's yeah. a, that's a really important, you know, it must've been an important revelation because you just said that to me and I go, Oh, okay. You know, like, like, you know, not even textbooks, John, just more like books by academicians, you know, not even. Yeah. It's always nerds that are writing something that, that are trying to, that they can't just speak to, to, like, to, within a crowd of people. It's, it's, you know, an academic argument rather than speaking as people, as people talk. And that, that's, that's one of the qualities of your book that, that I really did appreciate, you know? Oh, thank you. Well, so, so when I, um, my husband's job took us to London. So um, I did an additional degree in Islamic law from the University of London. And, and then I started writing books. So my first book was, it's called The Muslim Next Door. Um the Quran, the media, and that veil thing. And that's that's more kind of a, an introduction, but I, I try to put in a lot of stories and anecdotes about growing up Muslim in America to, in, in all my books. Demystifying Sharia is my third book. And apparently <laughs> Star Trek is all about Islam. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. when I, <laughs> I, I admit to being a Trekkie, but I never was a rabid one, never went to conventions, never dressed up. It's just that when I was, I was nervous, writing, I was nervous when we were going to yeah, do this. I was like, is she going to have ears? Is there going to be yeah, no, 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 like, are no, you going to have like a red outfit, pajama <laughs> outfit on? I was really nervous. I go, that's why I sent you that email. I go, are you, are you a Trekkie? You know? Yeah, so. well, no, it's, it's more, it, it kind of surprised me myself because uh, when I was writing my first book, I, all of a sudden these Star Trek examples started sidling into my consciousness. And I thought, where are these coming from? And then I thought, well, of course, because Star Trek is about universal values and accepting aliens as friends and getting over language differences and talking about the human condition and social justice. And that's a lot of what I write about. Yeah, the, your, your book really um, brought out, like I, I just, when I was going along in the journey of each chapter and how you're unpacking, okay, what is Islam? You started at the beginning. Um, it, it was, it, it spoke a lot to them. What happened in my career, I was supposed to teach in at FSI, the Foreign Service Institute about Islam in a Afghan context or Iraqi context. Mm-hmm. I started teaching the class and, and people would raise their hand and they'd say, um, what do you mean by Abrahamic faiths? And they're like, what? What do you mean by Islam? Uh, and so it was these, so we'd had to retro uh, build the, the, the class to not only talk about Islam in a Afghan context, we had to go into what is Islam, Islam 101, and then Abrahamic faiths when people didn't understand the Abrahamic references. And so you bringing back, taking, starting to start just starting with Sharia and bringing it back to the beginning, talking about um, the, the, the prophet and, and how the evolution of the idea of Islam came came from not a dominant religion, but a very small religion that needed to convert people, right? And so, um, so there wasn't it, it, Muslims weren't in charge of the world from the, from the get go, um, and so it was an amorphous sort of change 
into uh, in, into what what it is that the community that exists today, particularly with the the different maktavs, the different schools of thought. Um, and so I, I really appreciate the, that component of your book, um, the necessity to do that. Uh, yeah, I think it's. I think um, unfortunately, there's a lot of talk about Islam and Muslims, but there's very little understanding of it. So, um, you know, I always tell people like, suppose you were in a country where you didn't know any Christians, you hadn't learned about Christianity in school, and yet every day you heard about the KKK and the Lord's Army in Africa and the abortion clinic attackers and the Hutari Christian militia and the CIA, <laughs> that you might think you knew about Christianity because you heard about Christians every day, but you wouldn't know about Christianity. You would just hear, you would just know about the KKK and the Lord's Army in Africa. So that is the same situation with respect to Muslims. We hear every day stories about Muslims, usually in a violent context, and yet there's a very little understanding of who Muslims are, what they believe, what they do. Uh, back to your point about Abrahamic faiths, you know, Muhammad, in when he first started preaching in um, the, the year 610 or so, didn't think of himself as preaching a new religion. He thought of he thought of himself as preaching the religion of Abraham, the religion of one God. That's what he was preaching. And people don't realize that Islam accepts Judaism and Christianity as part of Islam, as part of its own tradition, and that we revere all the Judeo-Christian prophets. Um, and and after we say the name of Jesus, we say peace be upon him. And after we say the name of Moses, we say peace be upon him. Yeah, no, I, it's it's an important. I think an important aspect. I I get a lot of heat um, from from talking about the Abrahamic faiths, and and I have a an assertion that I'm writing a paper on right now that I've been told not to write. Um, and it's it's basically how the Jewish Jesus movement was expelled from. Uh, um, uh, Jerusalem from the realm, from the Roman realm, and what happened to them. And so I think there's a lot of connectivity between the Jewish Jesus movement and how it morphed into Islam. I think there's a, a huge connection there. Uh, although there's I have Jews and Christians who said, don't even, don't even think about going into that subject. You know? But the connectivity is there. Um, and there's actually archaeological evidence. Um, but I think that the the, the idea of the Judeo-Christian values is ex exactly what you're saying uh, about how there's this, this there's a there's a, 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 a purposeful and this indiscriminate um, um, propaganda going on that that tries to separate Islam from these other religions uh, and create a com completely different narrative. But well, you know the Quran, the Quran actually, the Quran considers Jews and Christians and other monotheists to be believers, not infidels. Uh, the Quran says that Jews and Christians and Sabians and those who believe in God and the last day shall go to heaven if they do good. So. Yeah, and I will, but I think people don't, but no, I always say when people say, some people start to pull out quotes of the Quran, I say, the Quran, I say well, have you read it? Have you read the whole thing? And, and if they find something that you don't like, have you read on? And have you read before? And you mentioned this right. in your book. It's like, I always say, read on. Um, but <laughs> I, I, so I always say, look, if you just pick up the Quran, it's like picking up Shakespeare with having no understanding of the language. Are you going to understand it? Mm, probably not. And the Quran is many times older than Shakespeare. Right. Right. And well, and there's, there's, there's contextual elements, but there's also, it's, it's, it's a, 
a living document, right? And so I think a lot of people don't understand that the, the, the you know, there's, the, there's an idea, there's an idea that's, that's carried throughout the entire text that is, it, it, it builds on itself and it has to, it has to be read in total or understood in total, right? So, um, and I think yes. that quality you emphasize in your book as well. Yes, you do have to read. It, 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 you have to read the whole thing because it is intertextual, intratextual, right? It, it, and, it, and it's elusive. It is poetry. It doesn't narrate a story. It alludes to other uh, historical events. It alludes to other, it alludes to the Bible sometimes. So you need to understand those allusions. You can't just understand it on the face of it. And there is a methodology for understanding the Quran. You, it, there's not, uh, like you have to, uh, the sword verses, the sword verses, the fighting verses are the ones that are always quoted by people who are um, wanting to prove that Islam is violent. And yet um, those were in a very specific seventh century context. Those were in response to what was happening in the seventh century, only 47 uh, fighting verses. There are only 47 verses that have anything to do with fighting out of the 6,000, 6, I think, 320 right. total verses in the Quran. I mean, that's less than 1% of the Quran has to do with fighting. Many more verses have to do with forgiveness and um, compassion and, um, and actually interfaith understanding. There's a very famous verse that says, God made you into different nations and tribes so you could learn from one another. Yeah, and all the, 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 violent, the violent passages are it, it, it directly related to any defensive action and it's explicit about defensive yes. action. So absolutely, you know, absolutely. Every, almost every verse that has to do with fighting is followed by a verse that says, but do not attack them unless they attack you first. So we, we sort of the, the conversation about Sharia and we're going to get into Sharia in just a moment because this is, you know, everybody's waiting going, Oh, they're not talking about the subject, but when it comes, <laughs> but when it comes to so, so to a, a violent act, let's just, so to me, I, I look at ISIS, um, I, you know, Daesh, I look at, I look at there's doomsday cults in every religion and that's what I call them. Right. So, um, and doomsday cults will take any verse uh, out of a religious text or make up their own and, and use it to justify their own acts. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the Taliban in large part, uh, it, 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 this is the parlance of our times because of the recent unpleasantness. I don't know if they're doomsday cults so much as they are a bunch of vigilantes and, and John Kiriakou and I uh, talked about this uh, two podcasts ago, uh, their origins and so forth. How, how do you, what's, what's, what's your take on this? So, you know, I look at it as people claim to be Muslim, but once they violate the maxims, they cease to cease to be Muslim. They're a doomsday cult. What, what, what is, what, how would you impact that? I'm, I'm a very simple guy, right? So um, I, I wanted to kind of get your take from, from your perspective, not only from the, the Sharia per, per component, but as someone who's a scholar and someone who speaks very, very clearly to uh, the Muslim community and non-Muslim community, what, what would, how would you, how would you explain that to the the response that's going to come? Certainly, in, in when we when we post the, this podcast about violence in Islam and their apologists for 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 what's actually going on, but the reality is is that Islam is a violent religion. So uh, you're right. All communities have nutcases in them. We all have nut. We all have nutcases in our communities. Um, so it is a matter of consensus, right? So in Islam, uh, it is forbidden by 
well, first of all, there are very few things that the Islamic scholars totally agreed on. There only about 1% of, of issues had a consensus. And this is one of them. So it's really important. In Islam, you may not take a life. Um, there's a quote that says, he who takes an innocent life, it shall be as if he killed all of humanity. You may not take a life in Islam, except in very limited circumstances. And then they're, they're the same kinds of circumstances that we can take a life in our modern American context, such as self-defense of imminent threat, uh, as um, if you kill a combatant in, a, in legitimate warfare, or if it's a death penalty case. And after a fair trial, you, you put someone to death according to the death penalty. Those are the only times that you can take a life in Islam. You may not go shoot protesters. That is murder under Islam. What ISIS does, um, killing people, enslaving people, that is forbidden in Islam. They're not jihadists. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, they're not jihadists. They are mass murderers under Sharia. So, so, so in this case, it's just one of those things where, you know, some, we're, we're fighting against all these different narratives that are out there, but I always look at enemies of Islam, right? So they, they, they're on the other side and, uh, and, and people always think, well, it's, you know, it's the infidel, it's this and that. I go, well, no, if you read the Quran, it, there's the embrace, it embraces multiple, 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 multiple faiths and embraces diverse peoples. But, and, and it couldn't have been that way if it was a religion that was just starting out. And like you said, uh, when the religion, the beginnings of religion, it was looked at as an Abrahamic faith, not a new religion, but it did, it did blossom as a new faith group. Um, and so that inclusiveness was very important at the beginnings of Islam. Maybe we could speak a little well, bit. Well, also that. a very important point is that absolutely without argumentation, it is forbidden to convert people by force in Islam. There's a verse that says there shall be no compulsion in religion. And uh, this was this is not even arguable. You can argue about all kinds of things uh, in religion, but this is not an arguable point. All Islamic scholars um, absolutely agree. You may not convert people by force in Islam. I keep on my desk. Uh, this is this is what my, my publicist always says. Don't do this. I keep on my desk a book, um, and it's uh, so I was the, the executive director uh, out of the uh, Center for Islam and Religious Freedom, and this is the. Okay, this is the book. It's Islam and Belief. Right? So the, the home of religious freedom, right? And uh, and I anytime anybody comes to my office, I always say, I always give them this. I say, read it. And you can see it's worn, but it talks about no compulsion of Islam and and uh, and it talks about the specific justifications in Islam for religious freedom. Uh, and uh, but I keep it on my desk because I use it so much. It's this is like a multi-faith madrasa in here. You know, so I go, yeah. <laughs> everybody laughs at me. They go, "You've got books on Jesus. You've got books on this." You go, "What's going on in here?" Go, I'm not really sure. Um, but the idea. Um, so I wanted to kind of just we didn't want I didn't want to go do a deep dive into history, but um, the idea the, the 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 logic is to talk was to talk a little bit about Islam and origins and your background, but to get into the heavy topic of Sharia, right? Um, and, and Sharia is uh, the, not only the topic of your book, but it is a topic that's been thrown around in the news. And uh, I, I pulled up just a few headlines, just so we could, just, just so I could take a look and see what's going on and, and have it frame up our conversation or sort of guide out. There's three really good headlines. If you just type it into Google and it says, Taliban will cut off hands of people who steal as Sharia is reinstated across Afghanistan, right? So that's one. Um, two is Sharia, uh, what is Sharia Islamic law shows how Muslims 
shows shows Muslims how to live and can be a, a force for for progress, uh, which is a really positive one. And then there's another one that says, "Is uh, the Taliban treatment of women really inspired by Sharia?" So sort of two opposing, and then one that's kind of sort of stuck in the middle. And is it or is it not? Um, and so these are top stories. You just type in Sharia on, on Google, and I don't know how their how their uh, their equation works, but it's something that's talked about a lot. It's something that makes headlines. So let's unpack Sharia. Let's talk about what it is and, and what are the misconceptions and why are we, are, is, it, is it making headlines right now with regard to the Taliban and, and, uh, and, the, and the, the, the recent current events? So, <laughs> you know, in that question, uh, you've asked me to basically recite my entire book, well, right? Well, <laughs> like, I've written well, an listen, entire we're book we're on this assume, question, John. I, I, I understand. I know it's a little bit complex, <laughs> but people are going to go, this is Sharia. They're going to jump on it. So is Sharia well, let me, let me Islamic law? Let's just start yeah, well, with let that. Me, let me, yeah. So you'll have to bear with me and just let me talk for a bit because this is not, this is not a topic you can say in 25 words or less. Um, so... Let me just give you a brief overview of what Sharia is. So for, first of all, the word Sharia does not have a fixed meaning. And this is what causes some of the confusion. Um, literally, Sharia is an Arabic word that means uh, the road to the watering place. If you're in the desert, that's the road you want to be on. In religious terms, it means the righteous path, the path that you want to be on to be a good person. It's the road of God, the path of God, the way of God. So early Muslims in the seventh century, after the prophet died, you know, when the prophet was alive, they just asked him their questions. But after he died, early Muslims, Muslims were faced with this question, like, what do we do to be on the path of God? How do we act to be on the path of God? And early Muslims had two clues. They had the Quran, which is the holy book, the Muslim holy book, which Muslims believe is the literal word of God. And they had the words and deeds of the prophet Muhammad, the Sunnah. And though, and they looked to those two um, divine sources to see if they could find the answers. How do we, how do we uh, behave so as to be on the way of God? If they couldn't find the answers, they started interpreting those religious texts to come up with new answers. And they filled thousands and thousands of books with opinions and debates and arguments about what they should do to be on the, on the path of God. And all this interpretive literature is called fiqh, which means understanding. So Sharia sometimes refers to the way of God Sometimes it refers to the, to the Quran and the Sunnah because those are the divine texts. And sometimes it refers to the Quran and the Sunnah and the Fiqh. Now, the Quran and the Sunnah and the Fiqh all constitute the greater part of Islam. And so that's why loosely Sharia just means Islam. And so if I have five seconds, I say Sharia just means Islam. That's what it means, loosely speaking. Uh, does it have outdated bits? Well, of course it does because it's 1400 years old. All religions, what religion doesn't have outdated bits? Uh, that doesn't mean that Muslims only adhere to seventh century interpretations of, of Sharia. Now, fiqh, <clears throat> which is the man-made portion of Sharia, um, fiqh was always meant to change. It is not rigid black and white law. So Sharia is not law the way we think of law, which is enforceable and rigid. 
Instead, it's a mass of religious guidelines, mostly having to do with personal behavior, personal behavior um, that and personal conduct that is supposed to put us on the path of God. Like, how do you pray? How many times do you pray? How do you fast? When do you fast? Can you make up your fasts? Um, so only about maybe one, two percent of Sharia has to do with any kind of criminal law or punishment. So broadly speaking, um, that is what Sharia means. There, what happened is that Islamic scholars would, would you know, learn about the methodology of interpretation. They would um, come up with a, a, a reasoned legal opinion and a reasoned legal opinion by a recognized Islamic scholar was called a fatwa. Now, if a lot of people agreed, a lot of other Islamic scholars agreed with this fatwa, then it might become a majority opinion. If all Islamic scholars agreed with this fatwa, it might become a consensus. And if people didn't agree with it, it would become a minority opinion or maybe it would just go away. So um, on any one question, if, if you say, what does Sharia say? on any particular point, the chances are that the Sharia says more than one thing. Right. Chances are it says a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And yeah. it was, and that Sharia based legal system took into account things like hardship and um, geography and culture and need and necessity in order to make it a legally pluralistic and flexible type of law. Now, I, I said that um, there wasn't consensus on a lot of issues, but one of the things that there was consensus on is the maqasid of sharia and this is called the goals of sharia now every islamic rule every piece of islamic law has to comply with the goals of the sharia and these goals were articulated as the right to life the right to religion the right to resources the right to human dignity and intellect and the right to family to me as a as a lawyer those sound a lot like our U.S. constitutional values, um, but these were articulated a thousand years ago. Yeah, and so, I, I mean, I think it's, so when it comes to your, you did it, you summarized the book, it was fine, it's good. Yeah, there, <laughs> There's there. a lot more in the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was just the first chapter. <laughs> but, the, but the idea of, okay, what is what is Sharia and what is in it? Uh, what it's not, uh, and the I, this idea of effect, uh, yes, you know, the interpretation of these these different questions that came through. What what are the answers? We don't know. No, we're not agreeing, not, not necessarily agreeing on all the answers. Um, there's multiple answers to the same question, depending on on who you are, where you come from, and then consensus, right? Uh, I always mm -hmm. talk about. Uh, you know, I, I I worked in a few countries and had a fatwa, and I and I would always say, ah, oh, it's just one guy. This, you know, and yeah. because of the development work, I'd go in, and and some of the some of the fatwas were really were pretty terrible. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> And and, and, uh, and but the but the idea they said well it's one guy they go what do you mean I go well it's not consensus so one guy hating you out of out of, out of a bunch of things is not so bad but fatwa doesn't necessarily doesn't mean a death sentence right it's that's that's something that's, that's part of the parlance of our times is you know <laughs> I, I, I guess I I operated in in Iraq and and Muktaba Sadr had a fatwa against me uh, for operating in in Iraq and everybody goes you're in big trouble and I go I don't know. I was like, should I issue out a fatwa? Should I do it? Maybe I'll do it. You know, I go, it doesn't matter because there's not going to be any consensus. Um, but 
it's been something that's been utilized by these doomsday cults or leaders of, of, of groups that are violent to emphasize or to, to create fear. Uh, well, first um, of all, it, um, a fatwa is a re reasoned, it's, it's non-binding. It's a reasoned legal opinion by a recognized Islamic scholar. So Osama bin Laden can issue a, could have, he's dead now, but he could have issued a fatwa, but, but it's, not, it's not a valid fatwa because he's not a recognized Islamic scholar. Right. And, and but that's a great good distinction to make. So if someone issues out a fatwa, it might get a headline. But in the Muslim community, no one cares, you right? Know? So, so it's and that's what I would always say. Is like, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy cut corn. I go. I don't really. It, this guy doesn't. He's not a recognized scholar. He might have a group of people that follow him, but that doesn't mean that he's he's a, he's recognized within 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 Islam. Particularly, like you know, we, we're talking about the diversity of Islam. You know, no two Muslims are the same. You know, and even within the within within within, 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 within the, the, the same school, they're not. So, um, and so it's just a lot of times you'd say, well, he's you know he's he's a Maliki, you know, and I'm a Jaffrey, so it's not to make any any difference just in that, you know. Um, I think also it's it's useful just to think about other religions, like think about how many different uh, priests or ministers they are who who give their opinions. Does that mean that all Christians believe them? I mean, there's a guy in Arizona, a, a, like a Christian cleric in Arizona who wants to kill all homosexuals. Does that mean that all Christians say that that's what you're supposed to do? Of course not. Right. So, and, well, I, and I think that has to do with that the, 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 part, the early part of our conversation about it's, you know, there's not a lot that's known about Islam and there's this, there's this want or this this drive to say it's a monolithic block um, that that where all beliefs are reside in in one one pot uh, and everyone has everybody's following that that one belief system um, and it's defined by and driven by the news and driven by the propaganda that's behind the anti-Islamic propaganda. Um, so so when it comes to Sharia and and how you we unpack this a little bit when it's we talk about Sharia and law, because they get it gets mixed, and we've talked a little bit about this. When, it, when it, the Taliban will cut off hands of, of people who steal, as Sharia is reinstated across Afghanistan. Uh, just let's unpack that statement it's a stupid headline. Yeah. For, for our listeners, <laughs> okay. because, because okay. it's a really it's that's the first thing that gets hit. So you're you know you're an authority. I'm just a, I'm just a guy who's done some development work. So tell me what how you would what, what's what's going on with that statement in your mind when you hear it. Okay, so so first of all, throughout Islamic history, and we're talking fourteen hundred years, um, the, at least the first thousand years of, of Islamic history, the Sharia-based legal system was in effect in some form. Um, colonialism dismantled it. But when it was in effect, it was not enforced by the state. Like morality was not enforced by the state. Um, in fact, there, there was always, I mean, Christian history is not like Islamic history. In Islamic history, um, the religious scholars, the clerics did not rule. They did not have political power. Uh, unlike, you know, in Europe, when you had very powerful bishops and, and cardinals. And so Islam never had a pope who, who had a political, um, who had political power and a political agenda. Um, you had the ruler, you had the religious, the ruler um, enforced laws like taxes and market regulations. And the religious scholars developed the religious law. And they were often at odds with each other because if the religious scholars didn't think that 
um, the ruler was a just ruler, then they would oppose him. <clears throat> and there was a big argument in early Islam where the ruler wanted to impose religious law, where he wanted to have, the caliph wanted to have power himself to impose the religious law. And the religious scholars fought him and there was a big argument and the religious scholars came out the winners. And after that, um, they developed, they had the religious authority and the ruler ruled, but did not have the religious authority. So first of all, that's important to understand. Um, secondly, um, the way that the Sharia system worked um, is that, well, do you want me to talk about criminal in particular? Well, if you had a question, so, so if I had a question about, about say, if can I get a divorce? I would go to my local mufti and I would say, can I get a divorce? And the mufti would, uh, give me an opinion. And if I didn't like it, I could go to another mufti and get his opinion and might be different. I could go to uh, another mufti who belonged to a different school of law and I'd get his opinion. And then I choose the one that was advantageous to me. And then, and then if my husband didn't go along with this, then I would take it to the judge and the judge would enforce this, this, um, this fatwa that I wanted to enforce. That's how it worked. That's how the system worked. Um, it wasn't enforced. So the Taliban or Iran or Saudi Arabia, these states that want to enforce their version of Sharia, that is not Sharia. That is not how it was meant to operate for a thousand years. The state was not meant to enforce Sharia. So just what I say is that there's no Sharia anywhere in the world. It's it's gone. It's gone. I mean, Sharia as the way of God, of course, that's that's not gone, but Sharia. Um, as a legal system, that is gone. It was never meant to be imposed by the state because that's a theology. And Islamic lands historically were never theologies. What states are doing now, whether they're the Taliban or Iran or Saudi Arabia, they're taking bits of Islamic sounding provisions and tacking them on to their, in Iran's case, civil code. It, most most Muslim majority countries have civil codes and constitutions. In fact, all of them are constitutional states, mostly based on um, civil law, based on the French system of law. And so they have these civil codes and constitutions and then they take Islamic sounding provisions like, I don't know, women have to cover their hair and they tack them on. That's not that's not Sharia, that's not how it worked. It's, it, it's, a, it's ridiculous, it's like taking an, a context from his, uh, it's like taking a rule um, out of its historical context and tucking it onto a modern civil code. Oh, so I was gonna say the Taliban, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what Sharia is. It's their, the Taliban came from, I mean, they were trained, a lot of them are illiterate, a lot of them are orphans from, from all the like 50 years of warfare in Afghanistan. They went to- um, um, Madrasas? religious schools, they're called madrasas, religious schools that were actually changed from theology into uh, military training. So, and that's a long story too, but so they don't know Sharia and all they're doing is they've heard of all these draconian punishments and that's what they're gonna enforce. And there's no, there's nothing new about a nationalistic or power hungry organization that uses religion to justify violence. There's nothing new in that. So and in most religions, stealing is wrong. Okay. And, uh, and yes. so like this is this is a good example, right? So the Taliban will cut off your hands of, pe of people who steal as Sharia is reinstated. 
most people, most most religions, most groups, whether they're secular or not, uh, or religious, believe that stealing is wrong. Uh, so, yes. and the punishment is usually up to the ruling entity, uh, the, the governmental entity. And in the well, in this case, the Taliban are a violent group of uh, uh, vigilantes, right? And who have taken the seat of power in Afghanistan. And so their punishment is going to be harsh. So it has nothing to do with Sharia. It just has to do with who they are as, as a group rather than, rather than Sharia dictating to them that hands need to be cut off. That's right. So, so let me tell you, under Sharia, yes, um, theft is wrong. You're not supposed to steal. But historically, it was almost never that anyone's hands would cut off, would be cut off. So, so the amputation for hands is is not even clear that that it's supposed to be amputation. That was the historical punishment. But even in the seventh, eighth, ninth centuries, um, the the restrictions around a conviction for theft were so voluminous that it was almost impossible to ever prove a case for theft that in, that in, that in, entitled this this um, penalty. So you had to have two eyewitnesses to the theft itself, and yet the theft had to be surreptitious. So that in itself is a conflict, right? How can it be surreptitious if you have two eyewitnesses to the theft itself? Um, moreover, it couldn't be, there's pages and pages of things it couldn't be. It couldn't be the theft couldn't be of a dog. It couldn't be of something that was in the wrong place. Like, like if it was jewelry in a barn, it didn't count. Um, it, it couldn't be uh, anything from your, that you might've had an interest in that, that, for example, that your family might have owned. Um, it couldn't be anything. I mean, there are just long, long, long lists of what it couldn't be so that it was almost impossible to satisfy all these requirements. And even if you did, then um, all the thief had to do was say, I own this property. And then whatever the circumstantial evidence was, the court would set aside the amputation punishment. Historically, if there was a thief, it, they were usually flogged. Historically, thieves were not executed or amputated. Um, there are stories of the Caliph Umar in the seventh century where people would bring, um, bring a thief in front of him. And Umar would say, did you steal anything? Say no because they didn't want to hear confessions. Um, because, you know, these punishments are called the hudud. And the Prophet Muhammad said, as, as much as you can, ward off the hudud. And if there's any doubt whatsoever, then you must let the person go, because forgiveness is better. And the Islamic scholars went out of their way to take this to heart and make it into a legal maxim. So almost, you know, this didn't, this didn't happen and people didn't get amputated. Um, in fact, both execution for adultery and amputation for theft were almost unheard of before the Saudis brought it back in, early, in the early 20th century. So what the Taliban are doing is, is just nonsense. Oh, also it went in both, in, in all criminal penalties like this, even if there was um, just incontrovertible evidence, Still, if the court decided there was even 0.5% doubt, then the, then the judge could just set aside the, the punishment. And in fact, if the thief or the adulterer or whoever it was repented, the, the court could set aside the punishment. So who can't repent? Like 
who's incapable of repenting? <laughs> of course you would get out of this punishment. So like the Taliban just take the law into their own hands. There's no fair trial. There has to be a trial. There have to be have to be witnesses before any of these punishments are are implemented. They don't do any of that. Yeah. So they're criminal so, thugs. Yeah. So it's 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 uh it's an important distinction to make because anybody can say they're implementing whatever law are using whatever backdrop of a law, for example, Sharia, and they could say be saying that they're they're exacting punishment in accordance to which takes responsibility off of them. Uh, it, 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 and, and then it puts it on the, the Ummah, right, the community. And, and that's what's been happening here. And and I that's why I thought what, what would be really important to kind of just like I said read some of these headlines and see what's going on. But there's a great headline that says what is Sharia? Islamic law shows Muslims how how to live. Um, and it says, uh, and, and can be a force for progressive, uh, progressive um, um, uh, societies. And I think that's, you know, as well as, it, you know, and so I think it's a, it's a, it, there's an interesting counterbalance here. Of course, they're from two different, no, the two different sources. Um, well, but, you know, Noah, Noah Feldman is a constant, is, he teaches constitutional law and Jewish law at Harvard. And uh, he, he's written a wonderful book called The, the Fall and Rise of the Islamic State. And one of the things he says is that for most of its history, um, Sharia had the most liberal and humane principles in the world. Yeah. And that is not an exaggeration. It is tragic what has happened. Well, you know, we have the most diverse Muslim community on the planet here in America. And, and, and is, is, is there any, there, there's Muslims here are, dealing with not only multi-faith diversity, but intra-faith diversity amongst themselves. And I mean, have you ever, have you ever gotten into a conversation about Sharia? I mean, I, I understand you're a scholar, but you know, like I, I, like growing up in a personal level, because I, I, I was, I, we were having this conversation before, I, I, no one ever imposed Sharia or talked about Sharia in, in, in the sense that it was a, there was a, there was an imposition or an agenda because, like you described earlier, there's it's it's a way it's a path it's it's integral in part in the in the Muslim identity. But as far as a um, an, an agenda to enforce law or to change laws or to supersede the laws of the state, for example, the Constitution or or civil law that's out, it doesn't exist. And and so yeah, okay, so yeah, so there's there's a whole big reason for this, and um, no, so Sharia again just means Islam. So all of us grew up learning not to steal, not to lie, not to cheat, you know, do your prayers, fast, give to charity. That's what we learned growing up, right? I didn't really, um, really hear this term Sharia until um, I did my degree in Islamic law. And so when I wrote my first book, I hardly spent any time on this word Sharia. I define it, but that's it. Uh, because it's the same as Islam and I'm explaining Islam anyway. It's redundant to be then talking about Sharia. Um, that was in 2008 that my first book came out. In 2010 or 11, I went to one of my Stanford reunions and I was standing there um, at the bookstore. It was an alumni author event and I was standing there next to a stack of my books and this couple who was there for their 50th reunion came up to me and they it was kind of a, re, a surreal moment, but they came up to me and they said, um, you're so attractive. We feel like we could talk to you. And we're really afraid that Sharia is taking over the United States. And I thought, 
oh, <laughs> and I thought, so you, so what did you think Muslims looked like? <laughs> and, I mean, ugly monsters. And, um, and I, anyway, so I, so I said to them, actually, no religious law can take over the United States because of our constitution. Yeah. And they said, Rush Limbaugh said it could. Yeah. And they left and they uh, did my book. So I thought, what is going on? And here's what happened. In 2010, um, a man named David Yerushalmi, who is part of the Islamophobia network in this country, he decided <clears throat> that he really wanted to introduce the idea of a scary Islamic law into the American public discourse. And he's a lawyer. He knows that no religious law can take over the United States, but he just wanted to introduce the scary idea of it. So he started to go to state legislatures and say, you need to, you need to enact an anti-Sharia law to prevent Sharia from taking over the United States. Colossal waste of time. There's no need for anything like this. And these are unconstitutional laws as well. You cannot discriminate against religions in the United States. There, um, but to date, I think it's something like 13. 14 states. 14 states have enacted anti-Sharia legislation. And a lot of it hasn't passed. In Tennessee, there was a law that would have made that would have made it um, illegal for me to say my prayers. Um, so of course, David Yerushalmi knew that this is unnecessary, but that wasn't his purpose. And he says himself that his purpose was to introduce right. the idea, oh, sorry, of a scary Islamic law. So, 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 so yeah, so, so that's how it all started. And that's what started the anti-Sharia protests. It's what started the scary notion of, of, of a Sharia. It's, these laws have produced all kinds of problems because um, they've actually been unjust. They're, they're problematic. They're unconstitutional, not only violating the, the, um, the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause, but also the Contracts Clause, the supremacy clause because all sorts of reasons. So, so that's how it that's how it all started. This idea of a, a scary Sharia, and then um, it sort of in parallel, you started to have um, ISIS and the Taliban saying that they were implementing Sharia when they're not doing it. When they're, it's nothing to do with Sharia. When actually, um, what they're doing is just trying to take over territory and using religion to justify it. They're no different. I often say ISIS and, and the Taliban are no different from the KKK. Uh, they both do brutal things um, with the justification of religion. The only difference is that um, the, the Taliban and, and ISIS operate in failed states. That's the reason that they've more, been more successful. Well, violent groups are going to try to justify themselves within whatever context they can gravitate towards, and and mm -hmm. it's just, it's happenstance, right? So if 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 Osama bin Laden was born in Texas, he would be, uh, you know, and even he would be, he would be, you know, in the KKK, or he would be because he's an extremist, you know, the Aryan Brotherhood, or um, he's an extreme. He has an extremist mind, right? So when when he was around, and so if he was born in America. And he would then gravitate towards a Christian militant group rather than a Muslim militant group. Um, and, and right. And in fact, all these, um, you know, there's this assumption in in the West and in our media that that Muslim terrorists act out of a religious motivation, even though the terrorists themselves say over and over and over again that they have political grievances. So Osama bin Laden said more than once 
that it was he had political grievances. That was why they attacked 9-11. He even said if it were about um, converting people to Islam, then why didn't we attack Sweden? You know, we, right. why was it the United States? Because the United States has hundreds of military bases throughout the, the world, many of them in Muslim-majority countries. Um, other terrorists have said that they have political grievances. They're upset with the way um, Muslims are being treated around the world. So uh, it doesn't come from religion. It comes from it comes from politics. Disenfranchised young men who were who were political, who were upset. Um, one of my favorite stories is that it's not a story; it's an occurrence. Um, in England, they they apprehended two young men who were going off to to join ISIS. And they found the last two books that these two young men had ordered from Amazon were Islam for Dummies and Quran for Dummies. <laughs> so clearly don't know much about religion. Right. They're just going to join ISIS for the power. Right, or the adventure, or or mm -hmm. they, they, they feel disenfranchised and it's something to do. Um, uh, well, there's a, there's a um, uh, criminal sort of terrorism expert named Mark Sageman, who has always studied it. His parents were Holocaust survivors. And so he's always been interested in violence. And he pretty much says that there are four stages to, to terrorism. And one is that Muslims see that um, the state of the world and they see that Muslims are being treated badly in the world. They buy into this idea that the West is at war with Islam, which is something that American pundits are confirming all the time. Um, they maybe have a personal incident then, like they're discriminated at work or somebody says something to them. Um, and then the fourth stage is that they join up with militant networks. So that's that's how it works. Yeah, it's it's and it's not it's not a unique necessarily to to Islam, right? So we have right. all these militias within the country. I mean, we have you know, January sixth. We have uh, you know the the, the 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 march on the Capitol, uh, the Capitol building, and I. You know, I, I have I have a T-shirt that says "This is why we can't have nice things," and it has the picture of the Capitol building. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wear it every once in a while. People go, "That's so right. We can't have nice things." Um, um, but uh, you know, I I appreciate you taking the time to discuss some of this stuff. It's not an easy topic. Um, my my uh, I, I wish Matthew was on because. It was really funny what Matthew his comment was. Well, we should get her on. He goes, "I really want to see." two Muslims debate Sharia. And I go, I don't know. I don't know. I was like, I don't know. I don't know if there's a debate over Sharia. I just, I, I, I didn't know. I, it was a funny comment. Cause I go. It's a very strange comment. And as people think, so here's the other thing I run into all the time. People think this is all a matter of opinion that, that you must have your opinion of Sharia and I must have my opinion of Sharia and we're going to debate about it. And there's no conception that no, these things are, there are facts. There are facts. I mean, there well, and, and you know, it's not like physics. It's not the, like the facts in mathematics, but but there are facts in terms of what is well established and what is definitional. Right, and and you know, the in, interpretations. So, thick the idea that there's you can gravitate towards whatever interpretation. And, and you know, one thing that's clear is like you talk to one to two Muslims, you get you know ten opinions, right? So, so the problem is that none of us agree on who we are and what we're about. Um, I, you know, I was, I was, I was waiting for a little bit. I go, oh, you know, because I'm smiling. I was the fact, oh my gosh, she's going to ask a question about the living among. And so, because we're different, right? So we're, I would say that we're Islam after hours. You know, that's, that's who we are. And, uh, and, and, so, and everybody goes, what are you talking about? I go, ah, we're a little bit different. Um, and so, um, because we have, you know, we have a guy. And, uh, um, and so, 
but the, but that's that's part of the beauty of who we are. We have this this identity that that allows us to make the judgment calls based on on what we believe to be um, the, the the core tenets of 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 not only the faith but the community and and the community belonging to the community and the self governance of the community is is not unique to Islam, but, you know, like Shia, we follow specific leaders um, that, that, that have, that, that, that are constantly telling us, okay, this is what it means right now. Um, and the living imam for the Aga Khan tells us what, what things are happening for now uh, and, and, and it contextualize things for now. And in, in the Sunni state, you know, there's all types of, you know, of, of, oh, of religious yeah. leaders. Yeah, no. and, and all Muslims, you know, whether they're Sunni Shia or sub subcategories of those, um, all and all Muslims, um, practically speaking, the the authority is is in the religious scholars. Whether it's in the living Imam, whether it's in um, the religious scholars, you know, the people who say, "Here's how you interpret the Quran now. Here's here's how it's." Um, the Quran is not static. It's applicable to all times, all places. And the people who say, yes, you know, here's what, um, how we interpret it. Those are the, practically speaking, those are religious scholars throughout the, the Muslim world. And, um, you know, sometimes that I, sometimes I tell people the Ottoman Empire, um, in the nearly 600 years of the Ottoman Empire, only one person was ever executed for adultery. And that even that was a was a very controversial political incident, um, you know. In what was what I was going to say, <laughs> I forgot what to say. Yeah. So, but but the Ottoman Empire. Oh, I know. Um, the Ottoman Empire decriminalized decriminalized homosexuality in 1958, over a century before um, the United States and England, right. for example. Yeah. And you know we. People don't know any of this stuff. And they just focus, they just focus on sensationalist headlines. And it's like, it's like the, it's like my previous example. It's like if the only time they covered Muslims was when um, you know, the Hutari Christian militia did something. Yeah. That's yeah. that's what it's been. Well, I you know, and I I, I think that this was a I think it's a useful conversation because here we are, like I said, not, I, there's no disagreement, I guess, on Syria, that, that there was no debate. No. Um, you know, you know, and I, I, and, and because I, I, I undoubtedly know that Sharia means something differently, different to you than it does to me. But I also know that there's a core that we both believe in that we don't even have to discuss, um, you know, and, 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 and when well, it, I think the rules can be different. Right. So Sharia means what it means. Right. And, and there is right. really no arguing about that. But the individual FIP rules can be interpreted differently right. by different people. Yeah, the interpretation, those elements, and then and so and, and who you listen to, what opinions, what goes on, is a completely different different deal, you know. Um, and it depends on the individual, and I think that's an important distinction to make, just like in any any faith group, right? So in, a, in yeah. Catholics will will gravitate towards a conservative uh, priest, whereas others will gra gravitate towards a more liberal priest. And, and that's, there's no difference in that. And canon law, it isn't really brought up. 
nope. in Catholic churches. So no one's saying, oh, uh, what, what, you know, what, when it comes to canon law, you know, are, are, let's debate about this canon. Um, so, and, and I think that's an important distinction. But that was the comment that was made with Matthew, and I, I'm throwing him under the bus a little bit. But I, and I said to him, I, go, I don't think we're going to just, I just don't, I was like, it doesn't work that way. It's not like a debate on, uh, statutory uh, uh, elements no. within the law, within within Islam, you know, should we be cutting off hands? It, no, that's not a, no, no, that's not that's not no, that's not a thing. That's not a thing. It's unfortunate that you know, you know, the remarkable thing. There are only um, there are only four punishments with, sorry, there are only four capital crimes with punishments listed in the Quran, and. The remarkable thing is not that there are four punishments listed for capital crimes. The remarkable thing is that there are only four of them right. yeah. for a 7th century document. Can we look at the Bible, please? Right. You know, it's that that was a typical thing of the time. And um, there is this idea that Muslims are frozen in the 7th century and have not progressed. Our, our social studies textbooks all portray Islam as frozen in the seventh century. They don't have any pictures of modern Muslims. Um, one of the things that I tell people is that there have been 14 Muslim women who have been presidents or prime ministers of Muslim populations. Right. That's many more presidents than we have had women presidents in the United States. And, you know, these were respected. That means, that means Muslim men voted for these Muslim women to be presidents or prime ministers of Muslim countries. And I, I will give you an example, which I really like of um, how Sharia works in, in real time, in, in modern times. Uh, and it has how it's always worked, you know, fiqh in action. I'll, I'll give an example. So uh, maybe 10 years ago, there was a big public debate between two very high level Sharia scholars in Egypt between the Grand Mufti of Al-Azhar University and the head of the uh, Supreme Court in Egypt, who was a very well-renowned Sharia scholar. And they had a big public debate on whether it was a duty for Muslim women to cover their hair. And one of them said that it was, and the other said that it wasn't. And they each had many, many um, documents and they had support for their positions. It was a, it was a public, um, debate that would, that the Egyptian public followed with great enthusiasm and interest. And so as a Muslim, if you have two high level Muslim scholars and one is saying, you don't have to cover your hair and the other is saying, you do have to cover your hair. What does that mean? That means you, you, you choose which yeah. opinion to follow. And, and they're both right. I mean, that's, that's the remarkable thing about Islam. Even when Islamic scholars came up with a fatwa and they like like these two scholars did right. One was a fatwa that you didn't have to cover your hair. One was a fatwa that you did. Even when they issued a fatwa, they always followed it by saying, "But God knows best." And by that they meant, "Here's my opinion. I think it's right, but only God knows best." And this other guy over there might be right instead. So in Islam and fiqh, all these. As long as they were reasoned legal opinions following the established methodology by recognized Islamic scholars, they were all valid. They were all valid opinions, and you could choose which one to follow. Well, I think I think we should. We've been talking. We could probably talk for a little while longer on all this stuff, but God knows best is probably a good a good place to end. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I really appreciate you 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 uh, you know tap dancing with me on Sharia and uh, and talking about um, not only your book but um, how you came to. Uh, write this, write this really important document. It's, it, is it the, it, is it the first, the first non-academic, um, and what I mean by that, not um, non-textbook uh, uh, book uh, <laughs> writings on Sharia? I mean, that's profound in itself. Uh, um, but, uh, and I promised to finish it. I was, like I said, this is on the audio <laughs> No <book>. pressure. <laughs> yeah, well, well, now I feel terrible when you were like, did you finish it? I was like, well, I got through. No. So, but, uh, um, I, I do believe that that it, these conversations are important and why, like even the comment with Matthew is, is a profound moment where he said, well, I want to see the two Muslims disagree about and, and how you guys unpack that. And I'm going, I, I don't know if we'll disagree so much as we're going to talk about some of the components of it. And, and we're coming from the same, same place, you know, um, yeah. we're coming from the same, you know, the same beach of the, uh, of the pond, even though, even though we might interpret uh, different components of a practice uh, uh, differently um, at, based on who we are and where we come from and, and, and our traditions. Um, I think it's just, it was, it's an important for to see two Muslims discuss this who have origins uh, from very different origins. So maybe, you know. We do, but I don't, I don't write only from my own background. So I'm always very careful to write um, and include other interpretations and in what I'm talking about. So I never say that um, the way I interpret Islam is the only way to interpret Islam, because it isn't. There are all kinds of myriad ways to interpret Islam. And so what I try to do is give the overall picture um, in, in a way that was like being a professor. It's not, um, you know, it, it's not my opinion, it's my research. Uh, but I write in the first person and I put in stories to make it, you know, readable. <laughs> well, it, it's like I said, it's a very, it, it was, it was wonderful to, to get through, uh, it, it passed the drive really fast and uh, from, <laughs> from, from, from DC to, to, to New York. And, uh, and like I said, it, it meant not so much to um, have somebody unpack these things appropriately um, because it is the parlance of our times. We are dealing with this, this, this question of, the identity of Islam and these focusing on these these that's on such an on such a, a controversial topic in in a way in which allows not only Muslims to feel pride in who they are and what's going on but also allows those people that have questions to get some answers but also is is uh, I, th I think very directly combating this counter the, the narrative that is um, running headlines like that that Sharia has anything to do with cutting off hands I know I know well you know when my book was coming out, one of my dad's friends asked him, so what's she working on? And he said, she's working on a book on Sharia. And my dad's friend who is Muslim said, oh, I'm, a, I'm afraid of Sharia. <laughs> and my dad said, well, then you need to read her book. <laughs> well, well, there, there he goes, buy the, buy the, demystify uh, yourself on Sharia. This is, you know, buy the book. Um, and it was, it's an enjoyable read. Um, it's, there's a lot, just fair warning. There's a lot of Star Trek in it. Um, <laughs> so um, just, you know, maybe, maybe in the next book, you could just do one shout out to Dune, just one. Um, I'll do and, my best. And, I'll do and my best. Uh, but uh, aside from that, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and having this thoughtful conversation. It means a lot to me. And, and I think to our listeners uh, and, and to bring a broader narrative uh, about who we are and what we're about. So thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you so much for having me, John. I really, I, it was very enjoyable. I, I loved meeting you. Thank you.
This has been Crossing Phase with Matt Hawkins and John Penna, a podcast of Roll Top Productions. If you like what you hear and would like to help defray the cost of the show, consider sponsoring us on Patreon by visiting crossingphase.com. Crossing Phase is available on all your favorite podcast outlets, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TuneIn. We'd appreciate your review of our program, especially in the iTunes store. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter, at MTHawk, at JTPinna, or at Crossing Phase. Music for this episode is courtesy Vajra, whose music is available at thevajratemple.com, Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon. Show notes for this episode and more are available at crossingfaiths.com.